church. He is risen. All right, let's try it again. He is risen. Today we're going to go through one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's Isaiah 53. If you have your Bibles with you, love for you to turn there. We'll have it on the screen as well. There's many reasons I love this chapter. One, it shows God's omniscience, meaning he knows everything. Uh, we actually will see uh, the crucifixion in this chapter, and it's really outstanding that it's in this chapter because the book of Isaiah was written somewhere between 700 and 681 B.C. Uh, it's not, it's probably 160 plus years later we have the first ever crucifixion that we see in history. It's in 519, and uh, it was actually King Darius of, of Persia who crucified 3,000 of his enemies at that point. So we see this vivid detail of crucifixion before crucifixion's even invented yet. It's just am amazing to see. So, I mean, praise be to our God who knows everything and isn't limited by time or space. But there's another reason I love this chapter as well, because it shows us what Christ did so that we could be saved. And we need to remember that on Resurrection Day, the great love that Christ has shown for us on the cross, no greater love than a man who lays down his life for his friend. And he not only did that, but he laid his life down for his enemies. We were enemies of God. So with that being said, let's go ahead and dive into our scripture, Isaiah 53. We're going to hit verses 3 through 6 and then actually skip down to the last, ha last half of 12. If you're trying to follow along with us. Verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds or with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The end of verse 12. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to gather on Resurrection Sunday. We get to celebrate our risen Savior. As Brother Jim said, we don't worship a God who is dead, but we worship a God who lives, who rose on the third day and is now at the right hand of the Father. And as we will discuss later, who intercedes on our behalf. How amazing is it to worship a God like that, a God who loved us while we were still his enemies. And may you open up our hearts and minds to understand the gospel, to understand what you did on the cross, to understand salvation today. We love you, praise you, and thank you, and amen. So today we're going to discuss three distinct truths in regards to our suffering Savior, namely Jesus Christ. The first is the suffering Savior was persecuted. The suffering Savior was persecuted. I'm going to reread verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So the God of all the universe comes down and takes on human flesh as we see at Christmas, namely Jesus Christ. He deserved all honor and glory, and yet, like, no one was above him, no one is above him, yet he was despised and rejected by men as he walked along this earth. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And some may scoff at that and say, well, we, like, where are you getting this whole we, Isaiah? Like, I don't understand where, where we is coming from, because first off, like, I wasn't there. I wasn't 
there crucifying Jesus. Uh, you know, and frankly, like, you weren't there either, Isaiah. Like, you're writing this book 700 years before Christ is, is, is incarnated, before he takes on human flesh. So he's like, so I mean, we could, we could say, well, what, what is this about? Well, Isaiah knows his own heart. He knows the heart of man. He knows our hearts as well, that it is not good. Romans 3, 10, and 11 lets us know that no one is good, not even one. And we would most likely be right there with the Jews who were screaming, crucify him, crucify him. So why was Jesus persecuted? He didn't fit the stereotypical Messiah that they were hoping for. So the Jews were under Roman leadership, and they weren't too happy about that. The Romans really put burdens on them and controlled their lives, controlled their religion, to be honest. If you kind of really look, they controlled them all throughout there. They had in mind a kingly leader who was going to come and rule and take over Rome, knock them down, and say, hey, we're in charge. They sought deliverance from a dictator, but he came to deliver them from death. Christ came to earth in human form as a man of suffering and not a man exercising dominion. Now one day, he will come back, and he will be that God who is exercising dominion. Praise the Lord. But his first coming, that's not how he came. He came as a suffering servant. Therefore, we esteemed him not. Therefore, he was rejected. And my friends, isn't this a problem that we see today? So we see Israel here, and they're they're, they're rejecting the Messiah that God has sent them, the Savior that he sent them. They, they want somebody to deliver them from this dictator, to deliver them from Rome, and yet he came to deliver them from death, and they care more about the carnal here and now. They're, they're not thinking about the future. They're like, hey, I, I want to live in victory now. I don't want to wait until I die. I don't want to wait for that. And don't we have so many people today that do the same thing? They, they say things like this, my God would never send people to hell. No. My God is, is only love and never judges or you know my God not only accepts people where they are you know we sing just as I am but but he lets them stay where they're at and doesn't ask them to go anywhere else he just loves them the way they are already and man has this inherent disdain and hatred for God we we've wanted to be God ever since Genesis 3 that brother Lee mentioned this morning since the fall of man since the garden we've wanted to be like God or God ourselves and because of this, man continues to try to mold God into his own image. The Bible has an answer for those who say God, their God won't do certain things. The Bible says that God does do. And the Bible would answer them, you know what, you're right. Your God would never send someone to hell. Your God would never make somebody change or say that what they did was wrong or say that there's absolute truth. Of course, because frankly, your God's not real is what the Bible would say. There is only one God, and that is Yahweh. That is Jesus Christ. That is the Trinity, God three and one, as we sang on our last song, the King of Kings. And those gods, little g gods, that so many worship among our society, and even back then, are nothing more than idols, and these worshipers are idolaters who worship, frankly, themselves and their own ideas instead of the ideas and the wisdom of God. Well, Jesus, knowing that this is a common thing, not only in that generation, but in our generation today, says in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? How many churches could, would Jesus come back and say that? 
He would say, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you say you worship Jesus when you hate me? When you don't do what I ask you to do, what I command you to do, and you say that I say things I didn't say, and you say I didn't say things that I did say, my word is clear on all of these issues, and you decide to take man's ideas instead of mine. Brothers and sisters, the world is set on things of the flesh and not things of God. Romans 8, 7 says that. For the mind is th- that is set on the flesh, or the here and now, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You cannot worship the world and the things of this world and worship God. You have only one master, either sin or God. They, they cannot love God. Instead, they are enemies of God that worship the things of the flesh, which is exactly what happened to Israel. Jesus is walking in their midst. He's doing miracles. He's, he's raising dead people. He's doing all of these amazing things. He's casting out demons. And, and what do they do? They persecute him. Most of Israel, eventually they, they, they pierce him and they crucify him, which brings us to our next point. Number two, the suffering Savior was, was pierced. Let's read verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah gives us a, a quick change-up here. Go ahead and put that picture on. If, if any of you are baseball players, you know what a, a change-up is, or if you watch baseball at all, uh, if you see this guy's already swung and the ball's not there yet, that's, that's a change-up. So, you know, these guys throw 100-mile-an-hour fastballs, all of a sudden they throw a 60-mile-an-hour change-up, and he gets us off balance. And that's kind of what Isaiah does here. So verses 1 through 3, we didn't go through 1 and 2, but the first part of this chapter talks about Jesus' humility. It talks about how, how he is, you know, stricken and not esteemed, and how he is all of these things. And then we get to verse 4, and there is a quick about face. All of a sudden, we see the tables are turned, and Christ is, not, is the one suffering, but a great clarification is given here. He isn't suffering because of his own sin or anything that he did wrong. He isn't suffering because he failed. He isn't suffering because he isn't worthy of all glory and honor. No, we see that he has taken these things for us, my friends. Theologian John Oswald says this, that weakness and illness that made us think little of the servant, the suffering servant, suffering saviors we're talking about here, it is our weakness and illness. The very things that made us think of him or think him of no account are the things for which we ought to honor him because it is for our sake he is enduring them. And as we'll see more clearly in our next point, Christ, or the next verse, uh, Christ took our punishment on the cross. And people hid their faces when looking at the gruesome scene of the crucifixion. Nobody wants to look on that. People hid their face when they looked at the humiliation that Jesus experienced on their own, because it's all done for us, though, and it's done on our behalf. We should be the ones hanging on that cross, brothers and sisters. Do you, do you realize that? That we should be the ones that took the nails through our wrists, and through our feet. But yet Christ, in verse 5, we see this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. We don't want to just go through that too quick. He was pierced. Uh, as, we, as we did at our Good Friday service this past week, and we took a nail and nailed our sin to the cross, and as I was sitting there listening to people hammer those nails, I just thought, oh, could you imagine the pain and agony Jesus experienced on that cross when our sin was pierced for when he was pierced for our sins, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The wrath of God was placed upon his son, and he was crushed by the weight of our sin. His body, his physical body, was crushed. 
He bore it all for us. He was pierced and he was crushed. Again, note the surety of what is to come. He, these are all, he was, he was, he was. This is 700 years before Christ comes to earth, but he was. That's the surety of the promise of God. He writes before crucifixion's even been invented. He writes before it's ever happened, but that's the beauty of God. He knows all, and he, what he says is going to happen. And the beauty of the cross also is that Christ's life was not taken from him. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, the Romans and the Jews took the life of Christ. And Jesus, before he even went to the cross, says this in John 10, 18. No one takes it from me, meaning his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He says that no one takes his life from him. The Jews and Romans don't go on to take Christ's life from him. No one can take anything from God that God doesn't give you. Because no man can overpower God. No demon or Satan himself cannot overpower God. We don't take anything from God. He only gives it to us by his own authority. But as we've already said, we should be the ones pierced. We should be the ones who are cursed and crushed. It should be our hands and feet that are nailed to the cross. The cross brings up two deep truths in the work of God and truths about God himself. The first is that God loves us, that God loves us. And we see this in 1 John 4, 16. God is love. Wow, well, so God is love, but can God only be love? Is he only love? It doesn't say God is only love. We see in Psalm 7, 11a another important aspect of God, but the second is that God is also a righteous judge. So God is love, and God is a righteous judge. So now we are at this, in this predicament where we are sinners deserving of hell because we've sinned against an infinite God. We deserve an infinite punishment, right? So, so the punishment must fit the crime. You, you give the punishment based on the crime. We've sinned against an infinitely holy God, and, and we deserve an infinitely awful punishment because of that. It's, it's equivalent, right? But how does God satisfy his justice? He's fully just. He can't go against that. He'd be a bad judge if he didn't judge us, if he didn't send us to hell, if there wasn't a punishment. How did God reconcile those two aspects of his personality? He is love, and he is just. Well, they come together in Christ, and that is the beauty of the cross. That is the beauty of the resurrection, that they both come together. God, knowing that we could not pay the penalty for our sin, became sin for us. He took it on himself as the righteous judge. He satisfied the righteous judgment on our behalf himself in the form of man. Verse 5 tells us that namely Christ, on him was brought the chastisement that brings us peace. This word chastisement in this context is punishment. The punishment that we deserved was placed upon him, our iniquities. These transgressions and iniquities all refer to man's willful rebellion against God. And then in verse 6, he moves on to talk about our waywardness. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I want us to reflect a little bit on verses 4 and 6 that we've just went through before we get into verse 6. 
there's been a very common group of pronouns here. And these pronouns have been our, we, and us. Our four times, we four times, and us three times if we're looking. Are, are you seeing a, an important trend in this passage? It's our sin. We did this. We deserve this. The problem is us. The problem is these unintelligent sheep that we are called and referred to. And speaking of sheep, sheep are notoriously simple and unobservant. I mean, if you look at sheep, they're just, they don't understand the risks around them. They, they don't understand to lo be looking out for a wolf. That's why they need a shepherd. They're not looking around, seeing what's going on. They aren't concerned with the thoughts of what's going to happen later today or what happens if all the grass is gone from this field. No, they simply put their heads down and they graze all day. They simply live in the moment. And then when something does get their attention, when there is a startling thing that kind of goes, a wolf actually comes, they don't make the wisest of choices. A, a sheep doesn't have a thought-out fire escape plan. They, 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 they don't have this thing like, oh, in case of emergency, dial 911. In case of emergency, go to this spot. They, they, they don't think ahead. They don't make the wisest choices. And they take off in any and every direction. So that, that way, one little scare of a flock of sheep will lead to sheep everywhere. They'll each go their own way. Because, because of this, the default action of sheep is to be lost. That's the default action. A sheep naturally gets lost. That's what sheep do. They get lost. And that's the animal that we are referred to here. We are called sheep. And just like sheep, the default nature of humans, the default nature of us, is to get lost. We, we don't, we're not born good and become bad. We are born bad. Our, our natural, we go with our heart, follow your heart, it leads you to hell. Don't do that. Your heart is deceptive. It's desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The book of Jeremiah says, I hear that all the time. I'll just follow your heart, whatever your heart tells you. Yeah, it leads you to horrible places. Follow your heart very long and you'll be very unhappy. You'll be very sad. You'll be very depressed because we are prone to wonder. Our default is to be lost. And it's also important to know in this the emphasis on, two, on one word and one phrase, all and everyone. All and everyone. It, we, we each, there's none of us who are innocent. There's none of us who are okay. None of us are considered good. None of us have it all together. Instead, we've all turned away. And where have we turned? To our own way. Each to his own way, to her own way. And what is our own way? Sin. Our, our own way is sin. It, it, it's on rebellion of what God wants us to do. It, it, it's on rebellion of what we're supposed to do. That's our natural bend. It's to get lost and to do bad things. We are by nature, by human nature, lost. And as lost persons, we deserve punishment, as we've already mentioned. We deserve punishment for the willful rebellion against God. And I think it's really important for us to know the real heart of man's fallen nature. I don't want to negate societal struggles and injustices in the world, but the major problem of our world is sin. That's the number one. Sadly, we never hear the media. The media never gets on and says, well, there's a sin problem in our world. They need Jesus is what it is. I've never heard even Fox News or any, any conservative group, CNN or anyone, no, no, none of these guys are saying, yeah, we just, we just need to all turn back to Jesus. We need to repent of our sins. That's not what the world is saying. Instead, they blame circumstances or politics or poverty. Uh, they, they blame systemic issues, uh, you know, whatever it is, among other issues. But all the evil in this world has 
the same origin, and that is sin, man's sin. The, what people don't, like, uh, man's greatest need is not financial well-being, comfort, better laws, job satisfaction, happiness. That's not man's greatest need, as we've mentioned before. Man's greatest need is to be delivered from a sin. And the Lord understood and uh, continues to understand that better than anyone. And so instead of punishing us as we deserved, instead of just saying, you know what, they've blown it. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll scrap it and start over again. It's not really worth it anymore. He saw fit to give us a way out of the punishment we deserved. 2 Corinthians 5.21, which you've already alluded to. For our sake, again, us, the, the same everyone that keeps going his own way, the same us that deserve the punishment on the cross, the same us that continues to willfully rebel against God, for us, for our sake, he made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The sinless Savior became the suffering Savior for us. He took our sin on the cross so that we would not have to bear it any longer. How amazing is that? But in order for us to have that huge blessing, that, that, that sin removed from us, we must repent and fully trust in God, fully trust in Jesus Christ for, as our Savior. And that's the hardest part about salvation. It requires humility. It requires you to say, you know what, I, I can't do it. I keep going my own way. I am as unintelligent as that sheep that I've been taught, called in verse 6. I, I, I'm going to continue to go my own way. My default way continues to get me in trouble. W the way I go always leads me to problems. I, I am naturally unrighteous. I, I don't want to do what he wants me to do. So I need, I need Jesus. I need your help. I need your salvation. I can't save myself any longer. It requires humility. And I'm reminded of the character uh, named Christian in the book, and now movie, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. He's walking around with this huge and heavy burden everywhere he goes. And it really hinders him as he walks along the paths. And he can't do certain things because of this, this huge burden. It really severely limits him. And he eventually goes to the narrow way, symbolizing salvation being through Christ alone. And he finally reaches a place called deliverance, which symbolizes the cross. It's so important for us to, to realize both of those being so important. True, under, true salvation understands who Christ is. We believe that he is fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross for our sins and rose three days later, and he's now at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. But it also realizes that he paid the full and entire penalty for our sin on the cross. It requires nothing from you. And, and part of coming to Christ is giving away everything, not holding back anything, but fully submitting to the Lordship of Christ. He paid for it all, and you need to give him every part of you. He didn't just die for part of you. He died for all of you, and so you must give all of yourself to him and fully trust him. And friends, I pray that it's really clear here that Christ isn't just participating with you in your suffering. And I hear some people try to understand that, yeah, Christ is participating in the suffering with me. He, he's participating in the punishment I deserve. He's taking part in that that punishment. It's like, no, no, he paid the entire payment for your punishment. There's nothing you have to add, nothing you have to do to earn your salvation. You just need to believe and trust in Christ and repent of your sins. He has wholly atoned for it. He's paid the full gift, and all he asks is that we repent, believe, and place our faith in him. He has been pierced and crucified on our behalf, church. He took the punishment that we deserved so we wouldn't have to. There's nothing greater than that. And may we all receive that free gift 
of salvation. Finally, our third point, the suffering Savior was and is powerful. The suffering Savior was and is powerful. I'm going to read verse 53, uh, or verse 12b here. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I'm sure some of you all are kind of thinking, well, this has been a really good Good Friday service, but I'm not sure if it's been an Easter or Resurrection Day message. And actually, I really hesitated. I, I, I love this chapter, and I kept looking at it. And I was like, you know, can I preach this on Resurrection Sunday? And as I read it, as I read it, I, I came to the end of this chapter, and for the first time ever, I saw that this was a Resurrection Sunday message. When I got to the end here in verse 12, I started reading it, and it said, He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Church, dead men cannot be intercessors. Let's say that again. Dead men cannot be intercessors. Do you see the resurrection is in Isaiah 53, 700 plus years before the crucifixion? Without going into too much detail, Hebrew has different types of verbs than we do. They have four types as well. Uh, they have four types of verbs, but a couple of the most common are, are perfect and imperfect. And this is written in the imperfect form, meaning, meaning it is happening. It continues to happen. How, how beautiful is this? We see the beauty of the resurrection. And as we've mentioned in this ser sermon already, God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He, he, he says this as it's already happened. Hey, you know what? He's also omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He has already done it. How amazing is that? Now, I want to look at a very good parallel verse to this to understand his intercessory work in a little bit more detail for us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save to the uttermost. I love that word. It means that no one is beyond his ability to be saved. I'm sure we all have somebody in our mind that are like, no, that guy can't get saved. I don't think so. I don't think that girl can get saved. She's way too far gone. Jesus can save anybody, and maybe sometimes we're that person. God can't save me. I've done too many bad things. If you knew what I thought, if you knew what I've done in the past week, if you know what I've done the past, my whole life, God can't save me. No, he is able to save to the uttermost because his power is just so far, supersedes your badness. Your badness can never outweigh his goodness. It is just way too good. Christ can still save you. He is mighty to save. And to understand the importance of this last word here, this intercession, we don't really use that word a ton in our natural English language. And so this word intercession means to plead on behalf of another. To plead on behalf of another. And the author of Hebrews lets us know that Christ always lives to make intercession for those who are saved believers. How amazing is this? So not only have we been saved by grace through faith, not only did Christ pour out our entire, uh, take, take, take out all of the wrath of God, everything that we deserved, but he continues, as we are believers, to intercede for us and to continue to forgive us for our sins. How, how beautiful is that? Yes, there are consequences to our sin on this side of eternity. There will be consequences that we, that we face, discipline that we face. Hebrews 12, 6, he disciplines us because he loves us. He's not going to let us just keep sinning, and there's not going to be some kind of thing if you're a believer. But he always lives to intercede on our behalf. He continues to cover us with his blood. 
When, when, when God looks upon us, we've talked about this many times, he sees his son, Jesus Christ. How, how beautiful is that? And a lot of times we look at ourselves and we're like, man, even if we are believers, we're like, man, we're a mess. How are we going to get into heaven? Like, I don't deserve to get in there. I'm gonna, I might get the talk to the hand. Why don't you head the other way? You, you, you went the wrong way. You know, don't we always, don't, don't sometimes we feel like that? Like, you know, because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve heaven. But when God sees us and when we get there, you know, well done, good and faithful servant, again, because of what Christ has done. What a wonderful Savior that we have. As we come to a close, I, I want us to sing the first verse and chorus of this beloved hymn because he lives. I, I, I think it just really encompasses um, the gospel uh, and how we live in light of it. If you haven't come to a saving knowledge of Christ, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd love to talk to you about what that means after we're done. I, I'd love to be able to share that with you. And, but if you are, you know, because he lives, you can face tomorrow. Because you live, all fear is gone. Even when we look at this world that Man, there's just a lot to be scared of. There's a lot to be afraid of when we look in this world if you don't have Christ. Because there is no hope if there is no Christ. If you have no Savior, you, you, you can't face tomorrow without fear. You, 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 you can't have any hope or a future because our hope and our future is on the one who holds our hope and our future, and that is Jesus Christ. He is our living hope. If y'all would stand with me, we'll, we'll sing this as we come to a close. God sent his son, they called him Jesus, he came to love, heal and forgive, he lived and died, to buy my pardon, an empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Sing that acapella. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he my friends, we can face tomorrow. We can have courage to face tomorrow. We can have courage and faith instead of fear because of what Christ has done for us. If your faith is not found in Christ alone, I would love to talk to you after the service and tell you how you can have faith instead of fear. For those of us who are believers, go forth knowing that you can fight the good fight of this life because Christ lives. He is risen. Let me pray for us. <laughs> Heavenly Father, may you walk with us, Lord. May you help us to live in light of the fact that because you live, because 
you continue to intercede for us because you live as the risen Savior, the risen Savior of our souls. We can face tomorrow. May you cast out all fear and may you replace it with faith and courage and help us to walk in newness of life and to celebrate this wonderful resurrection day knowing that it is only by your work, your saving work on the cross, that we can be saved. Amen. Have a blessed week.